0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the CG Garage. This is episode number three hundred and seventy-two, featuring Barbara Ford Grant, the president of Prism Stages, and with a lot of great stories. You will notice that I am not joined by Kristen; she is on vacation this week, but she is sorely missed, at least by me, because she does a huge amount for the podcast, and it's really much harder when she's not around. Uh, but anyway, let's talk about Barbara. Barbara was an amazing guest. Uh, I've I've known her. For through our time at Digital Domain together, but she's had an incredible career uh, at DreamWorks Animation and Sony and uh, Digital Domain, Disney, and much more. She talks a lot about a lot of that and some part of her career there. She also had an, a very interesting time at a company called Meow Wolf, which is an interactive art Uh, uh, company, which is really, really interesting. She also shares a lot of her time over at HBO, uh, of what her time was like when she was working at HBO, which was really fascinating in in a lot of ways. And, uh, And now what she's doing at Prism Stages, which is a really, really big uh, virtual production stage facility that she is helping uh, get started. And it looks very, very interesting. Also, uh, she happens to be the chair, the new chair of the SciTech uh, Awards, which is really great as part of the the Academy. Uh, and really great to have her uh, talk a little bit about that. And of course, uh, one of the great things to do to talk about with Barbara because of the amazing success she's had, it's really great to see her thoughts on on the, the struggles that uh, certain women may have in the tech industry, especially in visual effects. But anyway, it was really great having her on, and I'm very excited to have her uh, in this podcast. A uh, couple of announcements. As you guys may know, we've announced in the last few weeks, this uh, April is uh, Autism Acceptance uh, uh autism acceptance month. And with that, we've actually partnered with our great friends at Exceptional Minds, which is a great school uh, that teaches uh, people on the spectrum of virtual, virtual video effects skills, animation skills, and other skills of that nature. And it's a really, really great organization that we're really proud to support uh, and if you guys want to know more about Exceptional Minds, uh, go to exceptional-minds.org and figure out what they're doing there and what we're going to do at the end of this podcast uh, or sorry, at the end of this intro is we'll show a little sizzle reel of some of the stuff that uh, that goes on there and that will be in the video form of this podcast not the audio form and it'll give you a little bit of an insight as to what Exceptional Minds is all about but then after that we'll go straight to the podcast with, uh, with Barbara. Uh, okay, a couple of announcements for us on May 4th Uh, chaos will be at FMX 2022 Uh, we've going to have a booth there and we have a talk as well so we can go check it out it's going to be very exciting Uh, again on May 4th is uh, when we'll be there uh, in terms of products, uh, Chaos Corona 8 is out. Yes, and now it's called Chaos Corona. Uh, we're excited about that. And it has lots of new features, including uh, Chaos Scatter, Chaos Cosmos, Chaos, Corona Decal, and uh, new Corona Slicer. Uh, where you uh, So it will really help you guys out and check it out on Co- Corona 8. Uh, meantime... If you want to know more about this podcast, you can go to facebook.com slash podcast or chaos.com slash garage. And if you want to check us out on YouTube uh, to see the video form, you're more than welcome to do that. Just go to Chaos Group TV. Uh, sorry, go to youtube.com slash chaosgrouptv, and that's where you'll see all of the Chaos Group um, uh, videos, including this one. Uh, and if you want to have ideas about other podcasts or comments or any anything you'd like to communicate with us, just remember you can always email us labs at chaosgroup.com. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcast. And uh, that's about it. So, uh, like I said, we will be showing if you're watching the video form of this, you'll be seeing a, uh, a sizzle reel from the, our good friends at Exceptional Minds. And then right after that, we'll go into episode number 372 with Barbara Ford Grant. Welcome to another CG garage where the chaos group talks. You'll know it's over when the last bucket drops. We're going to fire off rays in high dynamic range. We know that ambient occlusion is passé. Global illumination won't lead you astray. And while image-based lighting is really swell, you need to make sure everything has fun now. Barbara, thank you so much for being on. I'm very excited to talk to you. There's lots of great news, lots of new stuff that's going on in your life and career. I'm very excited to talk about. Uh, but I think that, you know, the first time you and I met was when you were at you were D.D. Like, that's when we were talking, right? I think. Yes, so. probably. Yeah, I arrived at... Around Tron time? Were you there around Tron the time? I guess.
1: Tron. Yeah. Okay. It was the end of Tron, the beginning of... Uh, GI Joe 2 kind of time frame. Yeah. I think yeah. it was around um I want to say 2011.
0: Okay. Yeah. yeah, and I was going on to Real Steel and then I did Oblivion yeah. after that. Yeah. And...
1: Going on, yeah, that, that yeah. era exactly.
0: Cool. Well, that's really I mean,
1: great. Wait, it's it's a, it's a real honor. I mean, I've seen the roster. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, no, it's a real actually no, it's a really big deal to have you on, and and I'm, and I'm very excited about this one. So, but uh, I think people need to get a little understanding of your background, like where 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 it started, because I've you've you've been to a lot of really important places and had a lot of very interesting roles along the way. So, where what got you started in visual effects, or you're interested in visual effects, and how did that all begin? <laughs> I
1: was wondering if you're going to ask me that. Um, I think anyone who's been around as long as me has an interesting origin story because it wasn't an obvious path. Visual effects wasn't a really well-known thing in computer graphics. Uh, right. And Bob was not a well-known thing at the time. So um, my journey is probably particularly weird. So um, I, uh, I was an art student. Actually, I I was a fine arts student at the University of New Mexico. and uh, Nice. Yeah, and I had studied, I started as a painter and kind of gotten into photography and then started doing multimedia because I had started morphing that into installation work. I was introduced to a professor called June Youngblood, who had just started running this program on experimental video and um, introduced me to Namjoon Pike and Bill Viola and all these interesting people doing things where uh, it became very clear to me that I was interested in art, storytelling, and technology in the intersection of the three. Um, and, uh, so I started doing installation work that involved video and a little bit of computer graphics. I had gotten access to an Amiga 1000 and an Amiga toaster, uh, through our media center and started building stuff and, um, all to kind of create these, uh, no place in the real world experiences. There was no Meow Wolf back then. There was no place for this art to go. Right. (laughs) Um, and when I left school, I actually left as part of a whole group of people that I grew up with that were all in bands and part of a music scene. And I came to Los Angeles to work, and I thought experimental film, realizing when I got here, that's not what they did. <laughs> they, made, they made features with three-act screenplays. And, and uh, so the rest of the group of friends had moved to San Francisco, and they said, why don't you come up here? I had already been sort of a subscriber of Mondo 2000s, kind of aware of some of the things going on in, in the Bay Area. So I kind of, I wheeled my way into a gig as, an, I, I think I was paid in Pepsis actually. I'm not even sure I got paid for this, but I was like an intern for Berkeley Systems for a period. And I started doing texture painting and that led to doing digital map painting. And I started getting freelance gigs doing um, digital art for different things. And I did some stuff for, repainting star fields for the DVD release of Star Wars and doing texture painting for for Pixar for typistry initially, which was the software that never happened. Um, right. And it just happened a bit. but one of the things that also happened in that timeframe, because I did a number of uh, jobs that involved uh, taking the material on the computer and putting it back to film, like recording. So they had these prototype film recorders at the time. Um, There was the one that I think George Joblove and a couple of people had made at Lucas, and then we used a a Cine, a Solitaire Cine at the time to film things out. And I noticed that you know what was coming out on film really didn't look like the monitor. And this, you know, being an artist coming from a a painting background, from a fine art part, it really bothered me. I had lots of conversations with engineers about why that was happening, and and discussions about well, the numbers just work, and this is what. And that's when I learned about you know percept perceptual rendering and making choices about the things you give away and what you keep. And, and right. I think in a way, my passion for wanting to have it aesthetically look right led me to have forced me to learn how to code and learn how to work with color matrices and do color transforms to get the look that I saw to, to feel right. Because you had to make, right. especially back when it was like 8-bit and it was 422 or 4. I mean, these film recorders weren't doing what they right. do today. And um, so, yeah, so I actually started doing uh, color management between uh, monitors and film kind of early on. And when DreamWorks popped up, Animation Studio popped up, and they were looking for somebody to do film and color management, like, there were two of us. Like, I went to the, you know, three or four. We all knew each other. There were very few sure. So I, I think that was sort of the big, even though it was so far away from the fine art background I came from, what I realized is, like, Here's kind of something interesting, an intersection of all these things that takes my skills. Let's see where it goes. Um, right. And from there, I, I went to, I don't know how far you, down you want me to go into this.
0: Oh, yeah, all the way.
1: <laughs> so I, uh, I think I might have been like employee 75. It was really on. Early at, at, on. Dreamworks. at DreamWorks. Yeah, DreamWorks Animation. And this was,
0: this was after PDI or before this PDI? Was before, or?
1: So I yeah. went from, from the Bay Area to down to LA to work at, and it was back when, like I, you know, I would have been a junior engineer at the time where I was picked up in a limo and they do that, you know, with everybody they recruited had this like rock star experience to recruit in because it was a new studio and it was, you know, sure early 90s or whenever it was, mid 90s whenever it was. So I uh, was part of the original group, kind of worked on the pipeline, the animation pipeline and the color pipeline and how we were going to go out to film. For, for DreamWorks Animation and wound up staying through Prince of Egypt and most of Road to Eldorado. Um, okay. At that point, I got a little bit itchy about doing something creative and different. I did a bunch of, you know, I did a little bit of matte painting, I did a little bit of morphing clouds for the, the logo. I, I got to do some dabbling into creative, but I mostly worked on on color pipelines and not being trained in that. I can tell you it was not pretty, I'll be honest. I mean, I did a lot of, you know, it was like pro libraries wrapped up in T-shell scripts that had a lot of for each in it. it was not pretty, but we got to go from frames to film somehow. Right. And I, I, started, I started to get a sort of a love for the, the, all aspects of the pipeline, but I also had an itch to do something creative. So I went back to New York for three years, and it's probably not obvious from my, my CV that I did this, and shot fashion and produced fashion campaigns. For really? Mostly, yeah, <laughs> photography um, for like high end clients like Chanel and Gucci. And I did, I worked with um, a lot of fine art artists, uh, Cindy Sherman and Anthony like Oh my
0: God, I love Cindy Sherman. Right. So it was a good, <laughs> yeah. it
1: was a good, but it, it was a, Fashion's intense, Art, the fine art world's pretty intense. I actually got so (laughs) exhausted by that three-year experience that I was like, I'm gonna go back to film because it's more rational. It's more (laughs) like I can have like a more control over my life. And at that time, PDI called uh, because they had just gotten involved with DreamWorks. And they, well, actually they'd been involved with DreamWorks. We did, we filmed out Ants for them, but Mm -hmm. um, they had just been purchased. By DreamWorks.
0: <laughs> by DreamWorks, got it. And yeah,
1: finishing up Shrek, and so uh, I was originally came in to take Shrek to post, and then to to work on the the post pipeline for them. I wound up staying six years. Probably the best, my, some of my favorite six years, uh, memories of my career was those six years at PDI. I was just like a, It was small enough where you knew everyone. And I'm sure, you know, DD people have a similar kind of, like there's this affinity when they talk about the old days because like you know everyone, you watch people grow into who they were going to become in their career. And um, just an amazing group of people on a couple. I think one of the other things I think is a really sweet spot spot for studios is when most everyone's on the same project, right? That camaraderie, the the way you kind of band together to make it all happen. And, And I just happen to have been there through... Probably one too many Shreks, but I went through the Shrek, Shrek 2, Shrek 4D, <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and then a couple of Madagascars. And by the time Shrek the Third came around, I was I was ready to do something more interesting. <laughs> but while I was there, I, and I should say this, this goes all the way back to, I think, the earliest days of me arriving in San Francisco. I got to do the things I did because... No one really know, knew how to do it, but I, I happen to have had the, the gift of having managers and, and people above me who gave me the latitude to try and figure it out. Like they gave me an opportunity, like, we don't know how we're going to do it. You try. And, oh, yeah. and it made a huge difference because, you know, one of the things that I sort of always gravitate towards is I want to solve problems that haven't been solved before. And I want to solve them in a way that allows other people to do things that they've never done before. So I'm I'm, right. I'm really driven by that, and um, that kind of that went full force when I got to PDI because I had a lot, a lot of latitude. The producers trusted me. The um, uh, Andy Hendrickson was the head of technology at the time. He trusted me implicitly. He gave me a team of R and D engineers to start building tools with, and so that's what we did. We built playback systems. We built 3D projection systems. We did a bunch of. Um, editorial tools, and um, then I started getting into previs and and performance type things on, on the side. Um, because I had done so much work on the post-production and the 3D projection systems for Shrek 4D when Jeffrey made his proclamation that all movies would be in stereo going forward. I don't know if you remember that famous Yes, Yeah, story. I do. <laughs> Well, I was at PDI at the time, and DreamWorks and, and, right. and was you know full force behind these stereo movies, and so I was asked if I would be a co or an associate if I would come on as a producer for Monsters vs. Aliens, which was going to be the one, the first movie that was done fully stereo from start to finish, starting in layout. We had done some stereo layout tools, um, okay, and I turned that down. <laughs> To go to Sony Pictures Imageworks because I wanted to get. I saw it as an avenue. They had done Beowulf. They had done Polar Express before that. They'd also done like some amazing, you know, uh, simulation work on Spider Man. I and I and they had done some. You know, they'd already done the ICT scan for the dot Mm -hmm. dot character, and so it's like it looks like interesting things are going on over there. I'm going to go over to. And so I, I had a great opportunity. The guy who hired me, coincidentally not so coincidentally, the guy who hired me at DreamWorks was then head of technology at ImageWorks and brought okay. me in uh, to, to lead the back end of um, R&D, which was shading, rendering, simulations. But then we also computer vision, performance capture, virtual production tools that were sort of falling into that space as well. Um, and that was kind of amazing. And it was a great brain trust at the time at ImageWorks. We got to do a lot of things, you know, it was sort of the era of of Magnus and um, you yeah. know so there was there's volumetric renderer that was built there there was OSL yep. and a whole new shading library it was being done with Larry Gritz we had Marcos and Arnold was in the works and um, Tana
0: was just starting up there at that time yeah so it was, just,
1: it was, <laughs> it was like it was a, a, a supreme time in visual effects investment in R&D to be had yeah. at that time it was, it was well championed it was well funded um, we also had the Probably not so great from the accounting side of perspectives. We had a big gap. There was a shift after Beowulf. And, you know, this was sort of a lot of feelings in there. And I'm gonna kind of put a pin on the feelings yeah. that were because it it wasn't probably handled as well as it could be. But it, what happened at the end of Beowulf, and there's an enormous amount of people on the back end who did not have a project to roll into. And so we were doing gap mitigation, trying to figure out what to do with folks. And so a lot of those. R&D projects that became software inside of Imageworks and, and some of them became software as commercial products that are now used across all the studios happened as yep. a combination of the investment in R&D there and also the utilization of a whole lot of TDs who were on Gap. Like okay. a lot of fluid system or the flip system came out of Gap uh, effects folks. <laughs> right? Interesting. Um, a lot of the shading library came out of LookDev and Shader Writers who were just not on a show at the time. So it was just a an incredible opportunity of uh, really smart resources to do cool things. So uh, I very much enjoyed that time. And I also realized that I, I love building tools at scale that, that outlive a single production. Because it's great right. to make things right, and I'm going to come back to this as it relates to yeah. production, too. Right. It's great to make amazing things happen on the show. But when you realize you're making something that's going to change how shows get made down the road, like, like yep. it's not going to go away at the end of the show. We're going to keep building and iterating against this new way of thinking. That's super exciting. Yeah, um, so sure. from Image Works, I, uh, I went over to DD. Actually, I took All a right. off to spend with the kiddo. I had just, mm-hmm. I went on maternity leave and, and, um, wound up staying on maternity leave for like a year and a half. And then I got a call from DD about, um, about looking at technology across the shows and considering how could we have a global technology strategy, which as you know, was full of landmines and politics and,
0: and, oh, yeah. and
1: mixed feelings. And, and I said, yes, I'll do that. <laughs> right And so I, I came in initially, I think, under the auspices that I was going to look at the pipeline, and we were going to build a global pipeline, and we were going to try to roll large scale shows onto mm-hmm. it. Um, I think that got a little bit circumvented by the need to work on Jack, the you know, a big, a giant killer, the giant slayer. I think mm-hmm. what they changed the name to giant yep. slayer. Um, which I don't remember that. Was a an, an, emo- an, an emotional undertaking for a lot of people, but it was also a massive show for, for DD. Um, and for me, it was a really good opportunity to understand what dry, like what's actually important. Because I think it's, you know, on the surface, it's like, well, we're going to get economies of scale if everybody's on the same pipeline. Right. Sure. Um, but the same pipeline is not one size fit alls, And the same render is not one size fit alls. And, and, and their sort of talent is left out of the equation. Right, like this is how I work, and this is how I'm able to get this magic that I do because I do it in this way. And so I learned a lot about creating more open frameworks. We, you know, we tried to during that DD time. I think one of the initiatives that um, sort of prototyped that was when we started talking about digital, like a digital human pipeline, not just doing digital doubles or doing hero characters for a single show, but how do we build a pipeline for creating digital humans that's going to be a good starting point? for whatever show, regardless of what head rig you want to use or what solvers you want to use or what renderer, frankly, you're going to use. Right. Um, and, yeah, it's a tough crowd there, so it was good for me. Yeah, I couldn't. Yeah. You know, I had a little bit of hubris going in. I definitely had my house handed to me a couple of times um, during the course of that because I learned a lot about the, the just the passion of why choices are made in the thick of a production and how to kind of try and build a, enough openness to make that possible.
0: Well, I definitely think you know you had the toughest job at that time because pol- political uh, feelings were strong. Yeah, you were <laughs> and, and and some people were like, "Nope," and some people were like, "Absolutely," and you had to be in the middle. Of like, can't we find some compromise? Can't we all just get along? And it's a that's a really hard thing. And people take their renders like religion, you know. Yeah, and so I know.
1: Lion's Den for sure, as you know, yeah. and and. I, I, you know, I have a lot of respect for that. Like if you got to where you are because of the tools, you know, the way that you know them to have somebody come in and say, I'm going to take that away because this is better. This is going to save the company money. That's not enough of an argument. Um, right. It's just it's just not. But I, yeah, I think there's 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 certain things they're always going to have religious wars about them, you know. Right. Right. And I think render is one of them.
0: From the beginning, I think from the very beginning, uh, which is really, uh, which is unfortunate, but I know, you know, I, I work for, for a company that makes a render, so I know exactly, the, unfortunately, the minefield that those have. Yeah, um, I'm sure
1: that's the relationship that, that, that you have, and you guys, I mean, you and Vlad and, and everybody at Chaos, you know, one of the things that was really impressive to me, and I had a similar experience with a different vendor rendering situation at Imageworks, is that you were part of the team. You were there, sitting there working side by side, trying to figure out how to make that work for the project to achieve the goals that they were trying to get to creatively. And that makes all the difference. Part of like the success of a render or any tool in in creative process is the relationship to the people who are creating that tool.
0: Yes, for sure. For sure. Absolutely. Well, that was, that was great. I do remember it was a very hard position for you to be in, but I think, you know, you did, you did very well, all things considered. I'm gonna say <laughs> for <should>. sure. <laughs> it's a lot very of visual
1: effects after that one.
0: <laughs> you did. You did. You took off, right? So didn't you? Was sort of. that you went to HBO at that point? Yeah, is that I went quite?
1: to HBO, and part of that was, and it felt like a huge leap, and it kind of was. I mean, it was more of a cultural leap than anything else, because it was at a time when HBO they contacted me, and part of their interest in me in particular not having come from broadcast is like look we have 40 years of broadcast but now we have people wanting to shoot Alexis and do visual effects we're used to flames and a sony camera and you know you, they had a very specific way that things had been done for a long time and now it was right. all going file based and they wanted to figure out how do we do this at scale how do we get economies of scale um, how do we make it look as good as feature films
0: right. and so
1: it was kind of an exciting time to go in but it, how do you do that when we still have an entirely baseband infrastructure? We get tapes delivered? You know so there was a lot of um, housekeeping and um, resetting of the table that had to be done before we can even build towards that that goal that they had. So I wound up staying there for five years, and it was it was just incredible how much for an organization has been you know, HBO did about thirty to 36 shows a year, but you know a show could be 10 hours of programming. Right, a single show per, per season. So it was an enormous scale of content being produced at any given time and just a global footprint for it. Um, so it was just, it was an opportunity to work at a different scale than I ever had before, but solving yeah. a lot of familiar problems. <laughs>
0: Yeah, for sure. Uh, I, I, it's funny. I just had a conversation with uh, Mallory Yound, uh, and she was in a similar boat. She she got into, like, that became her niche, going from tape to, to file. Like, that became something that was very, very important and very interesting. Yeah. Uh, so she, I
1: had, it was a different political mind field, but when I got, uh, I was the tape killer. I just went yeah. workflow by workflow. Sports was last, because I knew they were just, like, they have to do a lot to air. Um, right. but I went workflow by workflow, killing the tape until right. we just were completely tapeless.
0: Yeah. I think the thing that she mentioned, it was strange. I never even thought of it was um the tsunami in Japan yeah. wiped out the yeah. factory and that sort of created a,
1: out. yes. Yeah. Right. Suddenly there was like you might not be able to get those tapes, the HD Cam SR.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, which was, was very, specifically
1: that tape everybody, which called.
0: is what everyone used. To. <laughs> like, exactly. Yeah, yeah
1: so I think I was called maybe a couple months after the tsunami.
0: Right. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Well, that's a very interesting. So that 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 process in HBO and dealing with streaming that must have been an interesting thing. Like the the I mean, they weren't streaming like, actually at the time, or they were just yeah. Streaming we had streaming.
1: no. We had a, a HBO Go had started. Oh, HBO Go. It, that's actually, right. Actually, but it was kind of. It wasn't on demand, but the, the pipeline to HBO Go was an after everything else was fed. We also send it to a CDN that feeds HBO Go. When we went right. to move to, and this did happen in my time frame, when we were moving to um, HBO now, it's like,
0: uh, I remember I'm not gonna HBO get, Go, let, let, there's a whole let, lot of
1: demanding H- and confusion, mm-hmm. and logos that are not great, if you ask me, but eventually we got, there, there's a. Over the top, OTT, right? So, right. to consumer streaming that was intended to be near to live, as close to when we actually delivered to the network as possible, and that required right. a complete upheaval of the way we did
0: post. And how was that? Because I mean, from what yeah. I remember, HBO Go was if you had cable and you had HBO, you could get this as extra. It was like yeah, your DVR it was, on it
1: was it was a, the Nifty app for basically on. Right, right. but I didn't
0: necessarily subscribe. I didn't have cable at all. Yeah. And I wanted to HBO. It's like, now I can just get HBO on my own. And he's like, this is great. So that must have been kind of a big deal, right?
1: It was a big deal. It was a big deal, I think, to the consumer and excited a whole new group of subscribers. It's also a big deal internally when you have a business that is largely operated by people selling content to cable providers. Right. Right. Yeah. That was the business. So it was a and so now the they're not selling just
0: to cable providers. Yeah. No so more. forget
1: about the infrastructure and you know, the post per, you know, the process of getting content to a new app. I mean, there was a, it was an upheaval of the company to to really consider it was a it was a complete redirection of the company, That's simply put. And it involved like all aspects of how we did things.
0: Yeah. And I guess the that's platform. <laughs> so they're the ones making decisions. They don't have to pitch anything to the cable providers. They just make the decisions on their own.
1: Yeah, way. and so which HBO kind of always has, and I found this super fascinating. And I, I hope this is still true. I, I'm not sure it's still true. But when I got to HBO, and it was like the the latter end of Mike Lombardo's reign, and, and Richard Plattler was there, and and just an amazing group of individuals. Who, Carolyn Strauss, who had built what was HBO, what people knew of HBO from an original programming perspective. And Wars sure. definitely, we are the curators kind of right. mantra, right? Like, we don't do audience testing. We don't let any, you know, Sky and Charter and Viacom, none of these people are going to tell us what our content is. They're going to, we're just going to negotiate how much they're going to pay for it because we already know they're going to want it. And, right. Internally, that curation process was enviable. It was intense. It was. It was. It, they invested well. They they um, brought an in incredible talent to the stable at all levels, like from well established, well known to we're going to try these kids that we saw something on YouTube that we really resonated with uh, yep. comics too. And they took great risks, and they were willing to kill it at any point in the process as well. Like. Anywhere from the development deal to we've already got a pilot or we've got a season and a can, they were willing to walk away from something if it wasn't good, which is, I think, why they had that golden moniker for so long is they just didn't put shit out, right? Like they, right. they definitely would, and I'm sorry if I'm cursing,
0: that's not okay. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've had Tim Miller on, so that's fine. <laughs>
1: okay. <laughs> All right. I'm mild
0: to <laughs> Oh, yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah,
1: so I, you know, I think it's a little different now, as as Warner Media and as different players have come in. You know, with at coming in and then exiting stage left, and Discovery right. now. I think there's there's probably more chefs in that creative curation mix, but. Um, that was one of but the there was also
0: you, I mean, that's those were the years when Game of Thrones was coming out, right? So people, yeah, HBO so was a was golden child. <laughs>
1: right. I, was at, I, I actually feel very, very lucky that I seem to have been at the right place during the golden time. Right. On a lot of yeah. occasions.
0: Yeah. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Okay. So so you said you were at HBO for what, about five years? For
1: five years. Yeah. Okay. And then I actually, I left just shy of the AT&T, AT&T acquisition. But I mean, I uh, whether I would have left because of that or not is kind of don't have to answer. But sure. I left for personal reasons. I had uh, a very significant event, unfortunate event, happened in my family, and uh, decided to take time off again. So we uh, moved back to the West Coast. Um, so it was a little bittersweet for me. I, I, I had an amazing experience at HBO. For the time that I was there, and it was—I think again—it it was like early days of Game of Thrones until at t like I couldn't bookended it better. It was just a great experience, and then and then decided to come back to LA. This is home base for me. I, I absolutely sure. love the, the, LA and the the industry that's here, and just the 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 um, energy among like technologists and storytellers here. So it's good to be right.
0: Okay. All right. So you took a little time off and then, but you started to get back into it after a while, right? So where did, where, yeah, what, little what, time what off
1: never lasts long for me? Yeah. No, and I it doesn't sound like it. I, um, I had a conversation. I think I had been back like a year and, and taken a year off. And then I had a conversation with Victoria Alonso. he's always great mm-hmm. to talk to when you're not sure what you're going to do. And wound up doing a bit of consulting, it turned in about eight months of consulting for Disney studio. So working with Jamie Boris and, um, Eddie Drake and and a bunch of great people over at at Disney Studios, Studio Labs folks as well, to look at uh, their innovation portfolio,
0: Mm -hmm. which, you know,
1: was exciting enough. Was it part of
0: Disney Research? So it
1: Disney Research, anywhere that they were doing R&D and innovation and kind of looking at where it was happening, what things were coming out of there. Um, how it aligned with the the work that they were creating and the access to it. And, and most importantly, this is kind of a challenge uh, with large students. I think it's a challenge, small and large. When you do a uh, research level R&D, how do you transfer, how does that tech get transferred into a practical aspect of being used on shows, being used on more than one show? And I think it's a sure. challenge that we all have. And so it's kind of looking at, uh, they invest quite a lot in R and D and research. And so it was a great portfolio to look at and they were doing amazing things with it, but it was just looking at how to, to, to further optimize how they were going about it, which was a lot of fun for me to be like, I knew bits and pieces of things they were doing, but it was nice to kind of look at it um yeah. on home, be able to help them a little bit.
0: Yeah. I was lucky enough. I actually got to visit, uh, Disney research in Zurich, oh, yeah. which was amazing. Ray-
1: amazing. Demarcus Gross has done an incredible job yes. assembling talent there and the, the relationship with the university.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really, really cool. So I guess, let's see, so Disney Innovation, was, was Steve Shapiro at Disney Innovation? He was, that time? yeah. He, okay. he, well,
1: he was up until weeks ago when he took the amazing uh, job, I, the first CTO ever at Ardman Animation.
0: I just saw that announcement today on LinkedIn, yeah. so good for I him. I love So Steve
1: was a TD at and working on stereo stuff at Imageworks when I first got there, so we got have it. kind of a long history together. And then I brought right. him over to Digital Domain, if you remember.
0: Yes, I do. Yeah, 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 and he was doing head head pipe big pipeline stuff there as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah so I remember that for sure. To, you know, continue to, yeah, to grow. <laughs> yeah, awesome. for sure, for sure, yeah, absolutely. Said,
1: absolutely. And and actually, you I think he probably took on the bulk of what I had put <laughs> into that effort. Right. Uh, right, right. of that effort.
0: For yeah. sure, for sure. And
1: so from there while I was doing that work, I got contacted by Jim Ward who used to Run Lucas Arts, who was then running Meow Wolf. <laughs>
0: oh, <laughs> about interesting. okay. So yes, meow. tell us about Meow Wolf. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that was amazing. I mean, of all the cool stuff you get called to do, I mean, it was it was a roller coaster of a ride, but it was it was so cool because it also brought back all these memories. Like I came from New Mexico. I studied fine art in New Mexico. I did installation art as a student, right. and then this Santa Fe-based company. Is doing this at scale, like they're building this, like, an a, a, a believable economic model around these location-based experiences that are made by all these installation artists. It was just like such a, an exciting thing to go back to. Um, so I spent a year with Meow Wolf and I came in, I'm going to say like, the I guess it was the fall. I mean, it was like the beginning, midway through the first year of the pandemic. Right. So mm-hmm. they, were, they were shut down in Santa Fe, had no mm. cash coming in. They were right. restructuring to be able to adjust to those changes, not knowing when they'd be able to open that one. And they had a roadmap to build and open two more that next year. Um, right. And so I came in. Uh, Can
0: you explain? It's just for the audience to explain a little bit about what Meow Wolf is and what they, they may not know. A, some that, is, in that is
1: a universal problem. Okay. <laughs> what is now? There's a documentary. Yeah. But I still don't think they answer. Um, I the best I can describe it is it's a it was a collective of artists, collection of artists in Santa Fe who had started creating environments that people wanted to experience, and they got bigger and bigger. And initially, they were in the museum and gallery space, and then they finally, at a certain point, Georgia R. R. Martin invested in a bowling alley so they could build it at a scale of a, a, a really. I think it was 30,000 square foot uh, location-based experience. And it's so unique because it involves everyone's different perspective and voice. When we think about location-based experiences, they're often driven with a really specific, you know, whether it's the creative director or the production designer, they, there's a f- usually a few sort of point of views that um, holistically create an experience. and you. When you go into the Santa Fe location of Meow in particular, you're going to see a thousand hands. You're going to smell the mm-hmm. glue gun. You're going to see all the different artists' point of view, and what they did—that's sort of part of the magic of it. And it feels very multiversey. Is they they do this thing called frosting to connect it all. So the connected worlds are really the connection of almost all these different artistic consciousnesses. Consciousness. Mm-hmm. I don't know—is that a plural? <laughs> so, <laughs> and so you and and they the way that they've gone about creating these connections is they they've invented this whole Meow Wolf narrative experience so there's this all this world building with characters and narrative threads and universes that are interconnected and even between the different locations there's there's threads of connection and so um, if I were to describe what Meow Wolf is it's a um it's a it's kind of a punk rock multi-dimensional multimedia metaverse tactile artist experience right <laughs> but almost, it's also
0: <laughs> well rooted in the physical world as well in some ways yeah
1: it's physically based but there's you you that's always so there yeah i should say that although i think that will change over time
0: yeah probably unless,
1: <laughs> <possible>. <laughs> unless something really changes there, there's there's many layers to it there's a location you can go to. There are there's a gamification layer to those locations, and then there's sort of a metaverse layer to to connecting those locations. Right, yeah. but it is yeah, it's physical. You're right.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's where, so. We'll so you started
1: those locations.
0: Yeah. Um, <laughs> yep. Well, I, so you started I, in the middle of the pandemic, right? Or right? right around that time.
1: Yeah, and at the time when I got there, I mean, they were in the middle of just like ripping out the Best Buy routers they had bought for the network (laughs) and and talking about building sort of an enterprise level you know message bus and operating system and and sort of like all the aspects you need to run a business like the you know point of sales and tracking customers and the CRM and then also uh, what they're you know they had been architecting for quite some time before I got in there their experience operating system which connects the experiences to like IoT and to uh, real-time projection and so so there's like arduinos and there's um touch designer and unreal and all these things that are in the 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 different locations what i should say is they all operate as a single organism so technically they're all wired together to operate a single organism where you're you're doing something your cause and effect can have another effect within that that entire space Um, and we opened las vegas in february last year and then uh denver in september Um, So that was a lot for my one year in Meow, but it was a great experience and it felt really good to watch both those locations open and actually be open before, uh, during COVID and be very, very successful.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Well, that's great. That's great. Now you've started something new, right? You've started (laughs) uh, doing another thing just more recently.
1: So at the same time that I uh, Mm -hmm. Uh, and Jim Ward knows this, so I can say this out loud and publicly. At the same yeah. time, I had been um, chatting with different people, Cliff Plumer being one of them, about virtual production. Uh, mm-hmm. I've always kind of had a passion for the that again that intersection. Like what I love about virtual production is it's, it's bringing people back to a real time collaborative experience. You're looking, you're looking and talking about the same things in real time. So um, I've been trying to figure out where it was going. Uh, as a business, and because you know, virtual production for me, historically it has been we pop it up for a show and we pull it back down. It hadn't been, you know, impre- it was front ending other visual effects work. It wasn't really its own thing. And, and we're still trying to figure out, like, is this something that we continue on and we can build tools that we can iterate on again, like to be able to do this at scale? Uh, And Cliff, in particular, was very interested in figuring out Cliff Plumer, who long history (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, in in visual effects, had been looking at trying to figure out an economic model that would work for standing up a virtual production business that was less about the specifics of a group, a single group of creatives, or a single visual effects house, or even a a single movie or, or, or studio, but really about creating a framework where people could come and create work, regardless of where, you know, wh- whoever's post, you know, pre vising it or tech-visiting, whoever's doing any post-visual effects work, or if you want to shoot this camera, that camera, if you want to use Unreal or something else, like how do we create a virtual production framework that people can use that's at a scale and an interoperability that makes sense economically as a business? And um, he had been doing a lot of work while I was a uh, busy playing with Arduinos and touch designer
0: <laughs> right?
1: and had made some traction and had uh, uh, put together already a couple of companies, Halon and Lux Machina, which is I mean, an extraordinary uh, consulting company. Built a lot of the volumes for a lot of different people already, including the Mandalorian one, the Leakston, and And, uh, and um, started working towards that goal. And at a certain point they were, they were, looking for funding and NEP came along and said, I just want one of those, you know, large owned by uh, NEPs, um, wholly owned by the Carlisle groups just for, okay.
0: <laughs> right. Uh, Which Vick's is part team. of foundry or was part of foundry. Of- the foundry right. was were, right.
1: That was part of their portfolio at one point disguise as part of their portfolio. So they've been in the E space for a long time. And they're particularly interested mm-hmm. in this area. And so, um, it made sense to them rather than building up, like, here's, here's a situation where we can mm-hmm. kind of hit the ground running because, Nep had already been spending. Number they'd been in broadcast for a very long time. They'd been doing live events for quite some time, and in both areas, in particular, live events, like they were already moving towards a lot of XR and virtual work. Anyway, they were doing process work. They were building large um, LED walls for different things. They were, you know, doing virtual environments and doing in-camera VFX. So this was sort of they saw this as a logical extension of the business that they were trying to go into anyway, um, and so. When it they did the acquisition, and they were looking for somebody to run the Prism stages to, to build and run the Prism stages business.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I said, "Yeah, of course." <laughs> <Okay>.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, that's very exciting. Well, so let, let let it. So, what is the Prism stages? I've I've seen the, the site a little bit, but people may want to know what it, what's about about.
1: Yeah. So. Within, so within virtual studios, what, what any calling virtual studios, there's virtual art department um, and there, there's previous virtual art department cinematics, which is largely like the Halon, pre-existing Halon business. Um, we're now extending what is that to, to be more inclusive of feature film and, and series work. And then there's uh, the volume itself, like the design. Ha- you know, one of the things that I think that Lux does exceptionally well is is designing volumes, purpose-built volumes that, that are built for permanent installation to do uh, a variety of different things, like to be versatile enough that, to, to do a lot of things. And so um, those two businesses still operate under virtual studios for us. So there's the the creative services, the production services, and volume design and operating the volumes. Prism stages are our own um, own designed and operated and staffed and run stages. And um, Trillith is the first sort of flagship uh, version of that, and that opens in May. And, okay, um, it's, um, it's it's incredible. It's beautiful. Like Trilith itself, you know, f- Frank Patterson and the team at Trillith have done an incredible job of transforming what was Pinewood into this incredible, like, creative community experience. as a flower shop for God's sakes. t Town right. is like got everything you need, um, right. and so we're part of. We're we're like the anchor tenant in what they're calling their creative technology footprint. Um, okay. So this is the first stage. I expect there'll probably be others in the future. It's uh, roughly like ninety-five by eighty-five foot by thirty-five foot volume. So it's a very large volume.
0: Very um, large. <laughs> it's
1: very large volume. Uh, you know, full, uh, fully, uh, you know, full tracking system. Amazing coverage for, for tracking um it's what can i tell you about it it's it's got a whole bunch of super cool design i probably get in trouble for telling it opens in may and we're going to start showing okay. us about it but there there are um some amazingly engineered it's amazing ingenuity that has gone into making it even more versatile to be able to do things um in a practical way to integrate practical right. in with that volume stage because then one of the challenges now, how do you get a crane in there how do you move a gym around and you know right. how do you use practical lights with the the, the ball lights and things like that right. so, um, and, and how do you get access to things <laughs> right when it's 35 feet tall sure um, so solving a lot of those sort of problems and um, yeah we start we're gonna start showing demos in May
0: yeah it was very I've, I've had to uh, the privilege of being inside an LED volume. And it's really kind of an amazing experience to see what that looks like and how that works. But I've been fascinated with virtual production, you know, ever since I started at, at, at chaos, I started on a project where I started looking at it. And I just think it's like the thing that I love the most is that is bringing the power of visual effects and computer, and, and computer graphics directly to the DPs and the directors. That's
1: exactly right. Directly to the like people who are used to practical tools to be able to- Before
0: they were just like handing off this stuff into this black box and like hopefully it looks good when it comes yeah, out. I, mean, you know?
1: yeah, I always use the uh, Alice in Wonderland example. So when we did Alice in Wonderland in- we were roughly tracking things back then, <laughs> right? Tracking solvers, but it was green screen, and you're doing all this work and you're collecting all this data. It was literally six months before you were going to see a composite of what actually happened, like what came right. together that day. And um, right. it, it's just amazing to watch people see this thing and real to be able to react to it and make creative decisions in real time on the stage.
0: Yeah, and yeah, I, think I think that's
1: I've done some incredible job, like. For those who are not really comfortable using an iPad or using you know using a computer, like to create tactical tools to help make that transition make sense to what they're seeing yeah. as well.
0: yeah, I, I'm hoping I'm hoping this is going to bring new respect for visual effects and CGI. Uh, to a thing, and some, I'm going to transition to the academy in a second. Yeah, <laughs> but because you know, there was a time, there was a dark time in my mind during, uh, uh, you know, during the life of Pi days, right, when things were really bad, and there was a very big disrespect for the amount of work that visual effects did from the rest of uh, of Hollywood, and I think that's not necessarily their fault; is just, they just didn't understand how much yeah, work and how much see we it. did.
1: Right. I mean they see what happens in the end, they see the composite and they make a decision against it. They don't see all the work that went into that. I don't right. know that it's been completely solved, but I think one of the interesting things that's happening because the studios see the value and the efficiency of working on a volume is that they have to think about solving things that they would fix in post or leave it to VFX to deal with. They're having to solve in pre-production. They're having to plan for. It. And I think mm-hmm. as as sort of metaverse needs come into play. Like if you're there, there's obviously certain entities that are going to want to make things that are not just a movie or a series that may be going to game or in other platforms. And so the app thinking about when they build the assets and how the assets are going to get used, that becomes a pre-production problem as well. So they're going to get a mm-hmm. lot more visibility into the work that goes into visual effects because we're changing where we're doing it.
0: Yeah. For sure. I'm very excited about that, by the way. I've been talking. (laughs) Everyone is, which is great. (laughs) Uh, But I think it's absolutely right. I think that, you know, suddenly the real time aspect is allowing filmmakers to be filmmakers again. And as opposed to we'll hand it to some guy. Hopefully he knows kind of how to make that look. You know what I mean? And it's like that's not that's not really the right move. Yeah,
1: that's and you also get you get spontaneity back, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you because know, the simultaneity of, of going through the creative process together it triggers things that's just not going to happen if you're doing, you know, your weekly review of things out of lighting.
0: Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that's really exciting. That's the thing that I'm looking forward to the most. And the the more that real time experience starts to get closer and closer and closer to, you know, what you're seeing on the final frame, and then then suddenly you are you are filmmaking again in a lot of ways. And I think that's really cool. <laughs> well, cool. So, uh, okay. So we're very excited to see uh, what's going on at Prism Stages. And so obviously there'll be some announcement in May, which is not far from now. So yeah. this podcast may come out like soon after that. Okay. Or, yeah. So
1: one, one opening in May and then there'll be others, obviously. Okay. Yes. Obviously.
0: Great. great, 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 great. All right. So that's really exciting to do, uh, to see what's going on there. Now let's talk, like, there's another announcement I think Darren told me about that you're going to be part of the academy. You have a new role at the academy. Is that true? Are be working with the SciTech committee? Or oh,
1: so I, I've actually, I don't know if this is well known, I've been on the SciTech committee for 15 years.
0: Yes, I do know that.
1: Yeah, so I, was, <laughs> uh, I was originally the first woman added to the digital imaging technology subcommittee. Mm-hmm. And sadly, it took many years to get any other women on there, but now there are several. Okay, to- good. Um, and then uh, this year I became chair of the main committee. So nice. Yeah. First yeah. woman ever. <laughs> but, uh, First
0: that, woman ever. Well, that's really that's a really great announcement. I think that's amazing. Yeah, that
1: doing so that. I'm pretty excited. And it's, it's going to be an incredible year for the, the areas of technology we're looking at. Yeah, so we're actually just launching uh, investigations now. Uh, the similar tech submissions call ended last week, and now we're looking through what we have, which is quite a lot. we got like 13 areas of technology we're looking at. Um, yeah. Yeah. So... And that will culminate in uh, awards, hopefully some awards, yes. this fall.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. That's really yes, exciting. Yes,
1: you know it all too well. We, I
0: yeah, I that. do. I do. Yeah. yeah. In fact, uh, Darren was very good at uh, telling us what we need to do to apply for that. So <laughs> we got. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but ben,
1: ben uh, is one of those people. So he's been on SciTech, I think, for at least a few years longer than me. Um, right. He's definitely one of those people who've helped lifted others along with him. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: So I'll call him out for that.
0: <laughs> for sure. For sure. Well, uh, I think the, you, know, there, you, you did bring up, you know, uh, uh, you were one of the first women to be in the academy. And obviously <clears throat> the, women, the the role of women has, is changing in visual effects. I think you're seeing more and more. I don't think it's changing fast enough.
1: I think it's we're little... talking. I think sometimes we confuse talking about it with changing.
0: Because I'm look, looking at all the Oscar nominees right now for visual effects. I don't. There's no woman at all in all of that. Is there? There's like yeah, 15 so people. Yeah. So there's
1: also was just thanks to to Brooke Bowles. So Brooke Bowles works in the Academy and she's been working with SciTech for many many years. So she's been very helpful in looping me into a lot of different conversations. And one that she just got me in. Recently, Brooke Brenton is—I believe—and she might be leading it with somebody else, but it's definitely Brooke. uh, That it's a task force, women in visual effects and animation, to actually change those numbers because, as you described, like we're not seeing any women in in the nominations at all. And I on the
0: leadership side of things.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and I wouldn't let yes off the hook either because it's not much better. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's definitely a challenge there. I I feel very fortunate in that I think I. I came in under the radar through a side door that allowed me to go up through the ranks uh, in a way. Because I possibly because of where my interests in technology were, there weren't a lot of people yet. Um, But I I can't imagine how I would come in now because the the the, the level of competition involved. If you're not if you don't get a hand, if you're not if if the industry is not supporting you doing that. And I think so. I think there's there's definitely work for us to do. And like you said, yeah, I do think it is changing. There's there's definitely a lot of one change is that there's a lot more conversation about it. Right. And there there, there's funding towards initiatives meant to address that. I think another way that we can all help is um, lifting, like looking for opportunities, because there's a there's also there's two things that happen. There's one to get people in the door right? To ensure that we're being inclusive enough and we're getting people in the door. The next is to get them a seat at the table, right? If they want to go into leadership, get them a seat at the table. The next is to make sure they know they need to speak. If they're sitting at the table, they have to speak up, right? Because that's the point of being at the table in the first place. Um, But then the other thing that seems to happen is, uh, you know, this is a tough business and and the further up in the ranks you go, the more it thins out. Women don't tend to, 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 we sort of I don't want to say we plateau, but we've flattened quite a bit at middle management. And it's hard to get women up into the higher ranks. And, and I think that's an area to address as well. Getting people in the door and then getting um, women into the higher ranks is another area that I'm particularly interested in, in figuring out. How do we ensure that we're lifting people and we're, we're creating environments where, you know, I have a, a special needs kiddo. There's there's a bit of juggling that has to happen. And I'm very upfront with anybody who's going to hire me but that that's part of the deal. <laughs> Um, well,
0: yeah, but they'd be missing out on all your talent if they didn't take that opportunity. So, <laughs>
1: yeah, and I'm, but but you know, having a confidence to have that conversation is not always so easy for people, and showing sure. like that they can do that, like or that because they may, yeah. You know, if you look around, you're not seeing a ton of working moms. I mean, I'll, I'll call Victoria; she's also a working mom. Sure. Um But it, I think we need to make that clear that people are doing that and people are supporting it. You can ask for it too.
0: Yeah. Yeah, my wife is a working bomb and a very successful flame artist doing a special branch of yeah, flame uh, art. I mean, they, they keep yeah.
1: it
0: the for that. And <laughs> well, well ever people. since the pandemic, we got the flame. We got a. We got the. I like the joke because we have the old flame in the bedroom. But uh, it's it's. <laughs> she works there and she's doing really well. And I think that that flexibility of allowing her to stay home um, has made a huge difference. Honestly speaking, The pandemic I think is changed the game for a lot of people in terms of their lifestyle
1: yeah i know i talked to Mm -hmm. a lot of folks at all different levels about like return to work is is not what you think it's gonna be (laughs) no because well i think
0: the other thing we prove especially
1: yeah you're relying on you're gonna have to be uh you're gonna have to be creative and you're also gonna have to be flexible about the way they want to work
0: absolutely Absolutely. Yeah. But I think the big thing that we proved because we had to prove it is that all of these things like you have to be in the facility because of all these security reasons. Well, that all went out the door when the totally pandemic happened. Totally out
1: the door. Like people are on the <laughs> public internet.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep.
1: I hope I'm nothing. not listening, but they know. They know there's going to have to be a certain amount of concessions. And I, I think we were starting to do just by the nature of Game of Thrones and how it was being uh, how the production was being done, we were already creating kind of like four-world personal environments for people to work remotely. And you knew it was sort of of like a select conversation. I'm sure every studio had the handful of people, well, we need to make sure this person can do that work from remote because this is their circumstances. And then with COVID, it just, all those tech, Technologies that we were sort of testing for those like that one editor, that one director, just became everyone's thing. Like, right? You know, that stack started like remote graphics, Teradea. Like, like we're going to throw this in for everyone. And right. I, I think it's interesting your point about like the security sort of went out the window and then it came back a little. Like, okay, what's the minimum viable work situation for artists? Yep. I think creative conversations too, like, oh, we need to have everyone in the screening room all together in order to have that conversation. You know, like, or we need to be able to uh, make sure that everyone is seeing it at scale and full resolution. And like, we've kind of backed away from that to a large extent as well. It's like, okay, when does it actually matter to do these sort of things?
0: (laughs) Yeah. I do remember like sitting two hours in a screening room when I could have been doing work, you know, like. Those yeah, were, well,
1: everyone has to do you're not even looking, you're waiting for your name, your shot to come up, you're doing your right. email, you're running <laughs> vendors in the background.
0: Right, but you're not, it's like, yes, yeah, so much, yeah, there's definitely efficiencies could be done. I'm actually, the other thing that I think is fascinating, so we're going to go back a little bit to virtual production, uh, is the other thing I think is fascinating is, you know, you you worked on big pipelines and you knew what pipelines were and pipelines were very waterfally. Right, they were like you couldn't do anything until the next person finished their job, and then you had to kick it back, and it took forever to come back to you, and it was these long things. But I think with virtual production, it's becoming way more agile and way more uh, more efficient. Yeah, we definitely
1: rights. have an opportunity to really streamline things. Yeah, like I, I think when I started with pipelines, there it was it was dirty work first of all. And it was a bunch of like it was a combination of pearl and shell scripts and, yep. you know, just, it was just kind of a hot mess. And it was a way to string department's assets together, right? Like we desperately right. need to figure out how to get effect stuff back into, <laughs> into animation. Into pod. Um, right. And what I, what I love about um, virtual production to a large, I guess it depends on where it is in the process in the production workflow, but it, for in-camera VFX and even for stuff you're, if you're going to have to turn it over with the OCFs and, and some data elements, if you're going to have to do things in post, it's largely streamlined in that it all has to get into the engine at some point, right? right. <laughs> and so you, there, there's a meeting point for, for all this stuff and there's, there's, there's only so much footprint it can handle. There's only so many file types it can So it's a nice, it's a great uh, normalizer in some ways and it helps us to, to really streamline the process. But it's also a way that, regardless of what you're doing, a lot of people are working in you know, it. People are using, they're using real time engine to do animation, to do layout, to do previews, to like they're in the engine anyway for doing all these other things. So it's it's sure. a nice uh, dem- democratizing tool.
0: <laughs> it, it is. It is. And you know, like I was, you know, when I, I was telling you when I first sort of got it fascinated with virtual production, I was. Motion Builder was the only kind of like game in town to do anything. <laughs> the right? First game integrator, <laughs> right? So, so that was the only thing that you could work on, and it was, you know, obviously limiting. And the biggest problem people had with Motion Builder is that it never really looked good, right? So, they were trying to figure out how to how to how to work that out, and so that's when we started integrating uh, real time ray tracing with Motion Builder, and I was like, oh my god, it's going to look like a movie. While we're shooting it, so it was kind of the thing I got excited. And then when the game engines came along, it's like it's like that is the hub, right? That's the hub of where everything you can experience, and it becomes sort of sort of really an interesting thing that you can do so many different things in that in that area. Well, so, I love
1: to use the word hub. It was kind of a word that we we're circling around is because it it allows all those different disciplines to come together and see yep. not only contribute their their pieces to it, but actually see it all out in an integrated form. Like the hub brings it all together so that you can make those, like you can do your creative work.
0: (laughs) Right. Yeah. 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 Which is really kind of cool. And that's the thing, you know, like I had this thing, it's like, no, you're going to have focus pullers on set again. You're going to have, you know, all these different people. And there are people who have
1: integrated focus pullers in virtual production environments.
0: (laughs) Yep. Yeah. And I think that's great because, you know, a, a focus puller can make a, Focus pull look much more cinematic than automatic, you know, stuff. So I yeah,
1: really and us I mean maybe that's what you are getting back to really this idea that we're going to have this integrated visual effects experience that's still the cinematic creation experience. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Super exciting. i so, um, yeah. yeah. I've been talking
0: song. to to Ben Grossman at Magnopus about this for years. <laughs> I've so, Ben. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. He's and I and he is like you know he's literally like trying to build an actual fake crane that has the weight of a crane just so it has the experience of yeah I, crane, I don't think there's know.
1: anyone who understands that, that that I know that understands that better the tactile aspects of filmmaking yeah. and how to translate that in a virtual real-time world.
0: Yeah you can't just move the camera in Maya and it's not the same deal. <laughs> no, there's <laughs> no. a point
1: to it, there's some stickiness yeah. to it. Yeah.
0: Uh-huh. Yep, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Sure. Well, listen. This has been amazing. There's obviously going to be a lot more things to talk to you about. So we're definitely going to have you back on oh, when you that. have more, more, more things. But I'm excited about prisons and congratulations on your new post at the at the SciTech committee. Uh, uh, so it's lots of great announcements, and it's an absolute pleasure having you on.
1: <laughs> and it's been a pleasure for me. I love talking these things. And Chris, you're a wonderful host. I really appreciate you having me on.